And the reason for this, this false doctrine going on here in the church in Ephesus was a misuse of the Old Testament law. They, they were, they, they, they were, they were uh, misusing it. Um, in many ways, taking pieces of the Old Testament law and trying to bring it back into, um, you know, the freedom that they have, ha- have now in Jesus. These false teachers did not understand the content or the purpose of God's law. They were leading believers out of the freedom that grace brings back into the bondage of legalism with an emphasis on appearance and an emphasis on external behavior. Paul writes here and he says, there is a proper use of the law and there is an improper use of the law. And so here's the deal. The law, the proper use of the law is to expose sin. It's to restrain sin. You think about the, the, the law of God, even how it has, as it has set itself up in, in like human history. You know, the Ten Commandments has been used for, for uh, uh, different civilizations and societies and how they would govern. So like, like the law of God in its intent, one of its purposes was to restrain sin, to like hold it back, to, to, to prevent like all out anarchy, meant to expose sin, meant to convict those who are breaking the law, who are lawless. And, but, the, but, the, but the really important thing to know, Paul's trying to make sure they understand this because they're improperly using the law is he's trying to help people understand that the law cannot save sinners cannot save sinner, uh, sinful people. It can only reveal their need for a savior. So we're in this series, The Good Fight, right? And I just want to acknowledge a couple things right up front uh, as I get started. I understand that, uh, that we live in a world right now that is filled with, with all kinds of conflict. And so a a sermon series called The Good Fight is language that will either excite us or nauseate us, right? And, uh, and I'm guessing for most of us, it's the latter, okay? And, uh, you know, you, you, you hear that language, the good fight, and it can, it can start to sort of, uh, uh, you know, incite imagery in us, you know, akin to the, uh, the epic movies, you know, Braveheart, Saving Private Ryan, Gladiator, and you think, man, fight the good fight, everybody, you know, or uh, what you do in life, Echoes in eternity, right? You know, Russell, Russell Crowe. Um, so, uh, but we're, we're living in a world right now where there is so much hatred, there's so much, like, division, so much anger, and fighting is the last thing we want to do, right? Most of us probably have no, uh, no stomach for it anymore, and so I felt like it was really important in light of, like, the graphic that has uh, boxing gloves and a title like that. I thought it was really important to kind of just share the thought behind the series with you really quick, and the thought is that is, is you know, what if, with all of the things that are going on around us right now, what if uh, these are fights that we were never meant to be in? And what if we could spend our summer together as the people of God, what if we could spend our summer together learning how to stop fighting unwinnable battles and instead coming together to learn how to fight the good fight? I think that that would uh, be a pretty good idea. And, and, you know, immediately there's a lot of you who are like, yeah, I want to I do that. But if we're going to do that, probably the most important question we have to start asking ourselves is, well, then what exactly is the good fight? You know, like anything other than fighting is probably good. And so we're like, hey, let's, 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 let's do the good fight. So what exactly is the good fight. Let me just give you my, my definition, okay? And, and it's this. The good fight 
is choosing to stay faithful to Jesus and his gospel in the face of great opposition and adversity. This, this is the good fight. This is what we are fighting for. Let me, let me make it clear. Personal fidelity to Jesus and his gospel in the midst of so much that is trying to pull us away. In the midst of so much that is trying to get us to compromise. Personal fidelity to Jesus and his gospel. In the midst of so much that is trying to get us to water down the gospel and, uh, and cheapen it. This is what we are supposed to do. And this is really the point of 1 Timothy. It's at least a huge part of 1 Timothy is, is this right here because, because Paul writes to Timothy and he tells him to guard the gospel. He tells him to make sure that you know, these twisted teachings don't make their way in and, and, and corrupt and distort the church and along with it the gospel. So he says, hey, guard it. You know, guard it with your life. He says, cling to the truth of Jesus. And he tells him to fight the good fight. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, Paul, Paul opens this, this, this letter to Timothy by telling him to fight the good fight. Look at, look at in, in, uh, in these two verses. He says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. He says, some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. So 1 Timothy is six chapters long. First, the first chapter we see Paul opens it up telling Timothy to fight the good fight, and then he closes it in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but you, man of God, flee from all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so what you see here in this in this. Uh, this letter from, from Paul to Timothy is you see it, it bookended with this charge to Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. And that is really what we are wanting to look at this summer together as a church family is like, hey, there's a lot of things that are pulling us, pulling at our emotions. There's a lot of, you know, fights that we kind of see ourselves sort of baited into. But what if there's a bunch of stuff going on around us, peripheral things that we're never meant to really be in and never re- meant to really engage in? What if, what if you know, before we, we, we worry about those types of things, we start to ask ourselves, are we even really seriously fighting the good fight? And, and let's make sure that that is the fight that matters the most, the fight that exists within our soul, the fight to stay, you know, faithful to Jesus no matter the cost. And so what I want to do is, is really help give some, some important context to First Timothy for you because, because we're going to be in it all summer. If we're going to be in it all summer, there's some foundation that I got to lay that will help us be able to build upon it as we go. And so you've kind of already heard me talk about this, but, but First Timothy is not really a book. You know, we, we, we kind of get that confused because we think of the Bible being constructed of 66 books of the Bible. But, but 1 Timothy is really a letter. It is, it is a pastoral epistle from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. And it takes place or is written shortly after Paul's release from prison in Rome. And, and so Timothy is probably about my age. He's in his 30s or 40s. Uh, he is considered a young man, which I appreciate. And he is... Um, a young protege of the Apostle Paul. And so what we, know, uh, what we know about, you know, the background and the context is that Paul has been released from Rome, and after he's released, he wants to go back to Ephesus. Because Ephesus is, is, a, is a place, it's a city that means an awful lot to the Apostle Paul. It's a place where he has led many people to faith in Christ. It's also a place where he has planted or started a church. 
previously on one of his missionary journeys. And so he's released from prison. He's like, I want to go back to Ephesus. And when he gets there, what he discovers is that while he was in prison, uh, man, the church of Ephesus has pretty much lost its mind. And, 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 and you know, like what he realizes is that, is that the city of Ephesus has sort of become this, this storm center for false Christian teaching. And he's, he's really, really concerned about it. Because this is his church. This is, he started this thing, and he's, he's been away, and he comes back, and he realizes, man, they're not remaining faithful to the, to, to the gospel. They're not remaining faithful to what we had taught. And all of this like, false doctrine and teaching is making its way into the church. And so Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, you got to stay in Ephesus. Don't leave Ephesus. you got to make sure that sound doctrine is being taught in the Ephesian church. Look what, he, what, what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And so you'll find, as in, for those of you who have already started reading through 1 Timothy, what you're going to find is that dealing with false doctrine is a major theme of 1 Timothy. It's, it's a massive thought. And so you know, I'm sitting here going, like, if we're going to be in this book together and we're going to be dealing with a book all summer long that talks a lot about false doctrine, we probably should all be on the same page about what doctrine even is. So let me just give you a very simple, brief definition of, of what doctrine is, in my opinion. And it's, it's this right here if you're taking notes. It's the beliefs and the positions of the church. This is doc, the doctrine. So if you think about, you know, 2,000 years of church history— the doctrine of the church has been its beliefs and its positions that it has held. And so if you use that definition, if you try to you know, help that you know, inform you, what that tells us then is that while Paul is away in prison, there are some teachings that are making their way into the church that he considers to be a violation of the doctrine of the church, the, the beliefs and the positions that it holds, and Paul is deeply, deeply troubled by it. So, Okay, take that and kind of set it, set it aside for a second. So to really, to really kind of pull this together and catch what's happening in this book, not only do you need to understand all of that context, but to really understand the significance of 1 Timothy, you have to understand, I think, the significance of Ephesus, the city where all of this takes place. You have to know what's like really going on here. And, you know, you may not be somebody who's like big into like history and cultural context, background, all that, and I get it, like just hang with me for a second, but... You know, it, I don't know that you can really, really see this, this letter pop the way it's meant to if you don't, if you don't engage it on a, on, a, um, on a contextual level. So I want to give it to you there. you got to understand the significance of Ephesus if we're going to really, really catch this. And so the city of Ephesus, whose ruins are in modern-day Turkey today, it was one of the major cities of the ancient world. Okay, it was a port city in the Aegean Sea, giving it major commercial, cultural, and military importance Think about this. Think about this. Even though Ephesus lies in ruins today, in the first century, it would have been the third largest city in the world. Okay? It was a city of about 200,000 people. Uh, the only cities larger and more prominent would have been Rome and Alexandria. And then third is Ephesus. Okay? So it's a, it's a big deal. You got to remember that the global population was much, much smaller back then. And so a city of 200,000 would have been incredibly large and in Incredibly rare. And so I just I give you that to help you just understand the significance of Ephesus, where it's positioned in the world. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a Roman, it's, in, it's in a Roman province at the time. 
And, and, and I want you to understand that like telling people about Jesus in Ephesus would not have been very easy in the first century. Following Jesus in Ephesus would not have been very easy. There was a, there was a, 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 very, a very pagan and sinful environment like, that, was, that was predominant in Ephesus. It, it, it was an environment that, that was not very welcoming to Christianity at the time. Let me, let me help, you, help you understand why. The most iconic landmark in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. This, there's a picture here on the screen you can look at, and this is like a, an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like because it, it, it doesn't exist anymore, but this is the Temple of Artemis. And Artemis was a Greek and Roman goddess, so in Greek culture she was known as Artemis, in Roman culture known as Diana. And that might not seem like a big deal to you. You may not care at all about that, and that's fine. All I really need you to understand is that the, is that is that the temple of Artemis was, was massive. It was so elaborate. It was so impressive, so much so that it is known today as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, okay? Uh, it, it's right up there with the pyramids in Egypt, which you're familiar with. It's right up there with the hanging gardens in Babylon. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis is a big deal, okay? Four times larger than the Pantheon in, in Athens. Like, it, it, it's, it's a big, big deal. You know, um, think about how Think about how, how uh, London is known by, by Buckingham Palace and, and Big Ben, or how you know, uh, Sydney is known by the Opera House, Paris, the Eiffel Tower. Like, you get the idea that Ephesus is known by the Temple of Artemis. And so it starts to make sense to us then how, how central to the culture in Ephesus was this worship of Artemis. And in fact, like, like twice a week, they would have these processions all across the city like, like to worship her. I mean, people would gather. They would stop what they were doing, like massive processions all across the city. Their, the, the image of this goddess was, was imprinted on their currency, which, which is a really interesting uh, piece of information to know because this is why in Acts chapter 19 they riot against the Apostle Paul. Because and you can go read that. It's a really interesting story where Paul is in Ephesus, but, but he's there preaching against the worship of Artemis. And, and the fear that these people have, these Ephesians have, is that, is that once people start turning from the worship of Artemis to Jesus, I mean, it's going to have an effect on their economy because, like, the goddess is imprinted on their currency. And so they're going to reject all of that. And so they riot in, in Acts 19 against, uh, against uh, the Apostle Paul. And, and I, I give you that because I just need you to know that Artemis is a really big deal. A really, really big deal. An entire month of the year was named after her. Um, uh, she is, uh, I mean, she has, has games held in her honor, you know. Uh, she's known as a, as a divine guardian and the patroness of the sexual instinct. That's, that's, that's who she is. So there were, there were very productive and sensual pictures of her, images of her, I guess, uh, all throughout the town, which would have promoted, like, all different types of, like, sexual immorality across the city. That's, that's what's going on. Okay, so context. Let's pull it back in. I tell you that because I want you to understand that this is the spiritual environment in which the Apostle Paul first plants the church. And it's the very same environment in which, in which Timothy is now tasked with pastoring. Like, can you imagine? Like, like knowing that information, I think all of us you know, very, very easily are able to understand that pastoring a church in Ephesus is not a real easy job. It's, it's not something that... that uh, uh, you know, people just, just like, are like, yeah, I'd love, to go to, I'd love to go to Ephesus, you know? Like, that'd be, that'd be a great place. You can begin to imagine within a, a pagan spiritual environment like this how easy it might have been for the purity of the gospel to begin to distort, uh, to begin to dilute. You, you can imagine these, these uh, pagan traditions trying to merge with the church, 
And this is why Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, don't leave. Don't leave Ephesus. Don't leave Ephesus. Stay there and, and lead the church that was started there and help these believers who are living in this t- pagan spiritual environment, help them understand how a church is supposed to function properly in the midst of an environment like that. And he helps them, he tells them uh, to, to stay there and make sure that these false teachers and these false doctrines do not infiltrate the church. Now, this is where we start to drop gear and shift, okay? Because I, I, I need you to catch that for a minute because I'm reading 1 Timothy, prepping for this message, and it's going pretty slow. And I, I mean, it might have been because I was in Florida, the, you know, the, the week before, and, you know, I, getting back, and, and I'm like, man, I got to write a sermon this week. And um, it just wasn't going very, very quick. And I, and I start reading through it and understanding more of, like, the background, the context, and, I'm, and all of a sudden it just hits me. Like, I, I noticed something that, that like, I, I never noticed before, and it's a huge thought that I think frames the entire message today if you're taking notes, and it's, it's this. In a pagan culture filled with so much sin, which I already told you about, Paul instructs Timothy to not look outward at the problems around the church, but to look inward at the broken things within the church. That's what's going on in 1 Timothy. Like, like I set all that up for you so you could understand, like, like there's a lot going on around the church. There's a lot of issues going on around the church. There's pagan worship, pagan idolatry, sexual promiscuity. I mean, there, there, there's, there's complete debauchery. I mean, anything you can imagine is happening in Ephesus. And, and Paul's concern is not so much in what is going on around the church. He's, he's concerned with what is going on in the church. Paul writes to Timothy and is basically telling them that there is a huge, huge fracture in the foundation of the Ephesian church. And that many believers in Ephesus have unknowingly given themselves over to deception. Unknowingly. He's writing in Timothy saying, hey, until these people, until these Christians in Ephesus become more disgusted with the sin that exists in them than they are with the sin that exists around them, they will never have a platform to bring change. That's, That's what Paul's doing here. He's telling them to not give themselves over to compromise. He's telling them to not embrace false doctrines. He's saying do not allow things into your life that the Bible, that the Word of God, that the Scriptures do not give license for. Don't do it. And so, and so I want to just talk about how easy this can happen, okay? In my opinion, one of the primary ways that people begin to drift into theological compromise is through what, what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error, if you're taking notes. Uh, maybe you've heard of this before, but the fundamental at- attribution error is when we excuse things in ourselves that we judge in others. Okay? When we excuse things in ourselves that we judge in others. This is how it works. This is how it works, okay? When someone does something that we don't like, we assign it to their character. But when we do the same thing, we assign it to our circumstances. That's how this works. So a good example is like, is like traffic, you know, like you, you've been in some of those moments where like people are, are driving and, and, and it's crazy and uh, I, I, like, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, zipping in and out, cutting you off and, you know, um, uh, you know, you're, you're just, you're just angry at them, just can't believe that they're doing that and what happens is, is we assign that to their character. We think of them as like somebody who, you know, uh, doesn't care about anybody, just, you know, horrible human. Who would do that? And then the problem is when we do the same thing, like, hey, we're running late. 
kids, the kids, you know, it wasn't very easy to get them out the door, get them dressed. Like, hey, I've got a deadline. And all of a sudden, we're driving like that. What we assign to someone else's character, we, ins- we now are assigning to our circumstances. And this is what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. And I think that the fundamental attribution error is one of the primary ways that hy- hypocrisy happens in the world. And it's, just, it's just one of the ways. Because, because we, we excuse in ourselves what we judge in others. This, this is how it works, especially in the church, okay? We, we, we reason like this. We go, I know the Bible says this, but if you knew my circumstances, you know? If you knew what I was going through, you'd understand why this is different for me than it is for you. I mean, it's, it's, got, a, it's got a twinge of, like, narcissism in it, doesn't it? Like, which we all kind of have, have, like, a leaning towards anyway, um, but, but it's my circumstances. You don't understand my circumstances and what I am going through. Like, I know what the Bible says about anger, Pastor Jordan, but you just don't understand the kind of family that I come from. Like, my circumstances are different than other people. Or I know what the Bible says about sexual sin. I know what the Bible says about these. But you just don't understand, Pastor Jordan. You don't understand. Like, and that's, this is the fundamental attribution error where we excuse in ourselves things that we, we deem to be wrong in others. And this is why a lot of people can listen to a sermon week after week after week and the whole time think this is good for someone else instead of coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for themselves. We excuse away our sinful behaviors as circumstantial and we give ourselves a pass and then the door opens for the sacred things to become watered down in us. Because when when sinful behavior in our life is, is circumstantial, when we can tell ourselves, well, it's just my circumstances that caused me to do that, like we don't dig deeper. Like we don't actually confront it seriously enough to go, hey, maybe that, maybe that thing has like moved its way deeper into me than I realized. Maybe instead of it just being surface level sin, maybe that's actually taken root in my heart. Like, like we don't deal with it the way it needs to be dealt with when we look at it as something that is circumstantial and not something that's happening in us at a heart level. Listen to me, I'm all for grace I'm all for grace. I reject shame at all costs. Like, if you've been here for any length of time, you know, man, we don't, we don't preach a, a gospel of shame around here. We reject that at all costs. But all that said, I'm not afraid to talk about sin. Jesus isn't afraid to talk about sin. I love Danny Silk's quote. He says that Jesus isn't afraid of sin because he has a solution for it. You know, like, like we're not afraid to talk about it. So grace, I'm all about grace. Grace is, is what we, we want to hold on to. But listen to me, grace is supposed to come to us after we have honestly looked at our sin, not before it. Otherwise, we don't understand grace. And this isn't just a one-time thing we do. Like, obviously, we do this before we come into relationship with God and we, and we surrender our lives to King Jesus. Obviously, we've got to have a look at our, at our life and go, man, yeah, that stuff's not all right. Like, I need salvation, and we find that in Jesus. But, but like, having an honest look at our sin, like, it's not just a one-time thing. That's not just something you, do, you did one time a long time ago. No, no, no. This is like something that we continually live within that tension of like understanding the severity of, like, of our brokenness and our sin while, while not living in uh, and, and, and heaping on shame uh, to our lives. When we excuse away sinful behaviors just say, hey, that's just my circumstances, I think that's when we open the door for the sacred things that matter much, so much to us to become watered down. This is one of the primary ways for a crack to appear in your foundation. Excusing away sin is circumstantial. And I think this is what is going on in the church in Ephesus. 
I think this is what's happening there. Because there's all this stuff going on externally. And you can imagine them kind of getting like, like, like just sort of like, you know, frustrated with all the sin and getting so frustrated with all the, all the things that are, you know, kind of running in opposition to like, you know, their, their faith and their values. And you can imagine, you can imagine something that probably isn't far different than, than like what we feel today sometimes. And I think very similarly, we can find ourselves so wound up about all the stuff that's happening externally. And I'm not saying that doesn't matter. I'm not saying we just like you lay down and go, man, yeah, just let, let evil run rampant and anarchy go crazy. But, but there is something to be taken away from here. That when we become more concerned about the sin happening around us than we are with the sin happening in us, we, we just will never have a platform to bring honest to change, real change to people. Here's what Paul is most concerned with, if you're taking notes. It's that when we, when we excuse things in ourselves that we judge in others, we discredit the teachings of Jesus. We discredit the teachings of Jesus. And this is why he says, don't give yourself to compromise. Guard against false doctrines. Think about in our culture right now. There's theological compromise everywhere. Everywhere. People who have a low view of Scripture there's an increase in like just so much like stuff that that uh, is just is just not okay. The Bible does not give license to. There's compromise everywhere we look. But Paul gives this warning here in First Timothy, where he's saying, "Hey, hey, when we carry ourselves as if compromise, when we carry ourselves as if as if all of the compromise is out there, uh, we're going to have problems." We're going to have big problems. It says, don't kid yourself. Don't just, don't just assume that the compromise only lives outside of the church or outside of your life or outside of your family. It says, he says, you got to understand that, that like, man, it's, it's seeping in. You got to understand that it's like it's taking root. You got to understand that this, this twisted stuff, this corrupted stuff, it's, it's, it's like working its way into your soul and you have to root it out. Do not allow it to live there. Paul wants those who claim to be Christians to understand that the gospel is meant to transform their entire life. Not just part of it. Not just, not just pieces of it. And so, you know, the church, if I'm honest with you, you know, and I'm, and I'm, a, and I'm a big fan of the church. You know, I obviously, I, I should probably, probably should be if, I'm doing what I'm doing, but you know, the, the church doesn't necessarily have a very good reputation right now. No one is looking at the church and thinking, man, that's probably what God had in mind. Like, who's, who's, who's doing that? And I think that's what's happening in Ephesus to a degree. I, at, least, at least I think we can extrapolate that a little bit here because, because I, think, I think we have to understand that, that, man, before we can get all, all worked up about all the stuff going on around us, we have to have an honest look at what's going on in us. And make sure that, man, that, that, that what we are doing as the people of God is what God wants us to be doing and how we're living our lives. If you're taking notes, I want you to catch this with me. Excusing in ourselves what we judge to be wrong in others creates the bedrock for lifeless religion. Okay? And this is where I get into like the three verses I have for today. First Timothy 1, 8 through 11, it says, we know that the law is good if, 
one uses it properly. We also know that, the, that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and, and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Again, remember, that's what he's dealing with. So all of these things are violations of sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And so Paul's writing to Timothy talking about the law. And he's saying, he, he's trying to help him understand that like the law is, it, it was the law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It, 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 was, it was designed not for righteous people. It was, it was put in place for lawbreakers. And so he, he, it, just, it just immediately gives this, this, this idea here that like it had to come because there is nobody who is righteous. He's acknowledging that the law was in, originally intended to be good. It had, 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 a, had a very good uh, intent. And he's saying that there is, this, there is this tradition of truth in your culture, in, in your history, uh, that has validity. Like it has validity. He, but, he, but, he's, but he's trying to get them to understand that they need to be aware of, of the way that it has been taught and the way that it has been practiced because there is a proper way to handle the law and there is an improper way to handle the law. And the reason for this, this false doctrine going on here in the church in Ephesus was a misuse of the Old Testament law. They, they, were, they, 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 were, they were misusing it. Um, in many ways taking pieces of the Old Testament law and trying to bring it back into, um, you know, the freedom that they have, ha have now in Jesus. These false teachers did not understand the content or the purpose of God's law. They were leading believers out of the freedom that grace brings back into the bondage of legalism with an emphasis on appearance and an emphasis on external behavior. And tragically, this all still happens today. If you're familiar with the uh, author Christopher Hitchens, some of you may know who, who he was, a self-described anti-atheist, whatever that means. You might remember that he wrote a book in 2007 called God is Not Great, subtitled Religion Poisons Everything. The book created a significant panic amongst the people poisoning everything. The response from the religious community came in the form of debates, TV shows, blogs, Sermons, the list goes on and on. Their quick rebuttal was that, to Hitchens was that religion does not poison everything. Religion improves everything. But Hitchens' argument was almost too easy. He argued that religion is about control, that it's about cult-like thought reform that takes free thinkers and restricts their ability to believe what they want. He argued that religion is about power, so the crusades, wars, jihads, a form of violence where people who believe they are right enforce their will onto others. He argued that religion is about moral oppression, self-righteous people imposing standards that the typical person can't live up to or even wants to in the first place. And this is why he wrote that religion poisons everything. Now, interestingly enough, and I don't, I don't mean to sound you know, facetious or cute here, but like many, if you're taking notes, many people who follow Jesus and maybe even Jesus himself would agree that religion poisons everything. That it breeds performance. 
If I can just do these things to please God, then he will like me. Like a, like a, a list of, of, uh, of, of rules. If I can just, if I can just you know, kind of, kind of create my own, through my own merit and good works, like, like all of the, all of this stuff that, that God would please, then he, then he's going to like, he's going to invite me into relationship with him. And the interesting thing about religion and, and, uh, and, and what I'm getting at here is that our flesh tends to gravitate towards religious legalism. It just does. Like if you don't, if you don't guard against it, if you're not, if you're not walking with, with God and walking by the Spirit, you will tend to, to, to drift towards religious legalism because rules and regulations, listen to me, they enable a person to appear holy without having to change their heart. And this is what has always existed in the church. And this is why, this is why you can turn on the TV or you can get on your, 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 your device and you can, you can each week read stories of somewhere in the world of something crazy happening in the church that doesn't make Jesus look very good. Because religious legalism creates a culture where there is an appearance of holiness without transformation taking place deep in the heart. So let's get on the same page about legalism for a second. Here's the definition if you're taking notes. It's when we think that what we do is what makes us right with God. That's legalism. When we think that what we do is what makes us right with God. And do you know that Jesus spent almost a third of his ministry trying to deal with and respond to this kind of, uh, this kind of spiritual legalism? I mean, this is, this is Jesus, a third of his ministry, he's confronting the Pharisees who are doing this very same thing, who are teaching this, who are... Who are teaching legalism to people. He is confronting them over, over a third of his ministry spent doing this. And his issue is that they are teaching a, uh, a law with an emphasis on external performance. The emphasis on what is happening externally rather than on what is happening internally. This is why when Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts to flip everything and, and, and he starts to say, hey, look, like, no, it's not just about what's going on outside of you. Like, like, it's about what's happening in the heart too. And this right here, all of this legalism, all of this law, all of this stuff going on, this is what Paul desperately wants the church in Ephesus to avoid. Let me, this isn't in the notes, but let me just give you a thought I had. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's good. I think it is okay to say. Do you know that Christianity may be the only faith in the world that calls people to repent for doing good things from the wrong motive? Christianity might be the only faith in the world that calls people to repent for doing good things from the wrong motive. The only faith that calls people to repent for their religion. Because it's hollow, it's empty. Like, like you can't earn it on your own. Like, yeah, sure, those are good things, awesome, like great, but like that doesn't justify you before God. I'm glad that you cared about those people and you, you did some good works. Like there's, there's no denying that. Like you are, you are created in the image of God. Like he's put his stamp on you. And so, and so that, the goodness of God exists in you for the world. Like you can do that, but that doesn't justify you before God. It doesn't deal with the issue of sin. And it doesn't deal with the issue of the law that has been broken. Christianity calls people to not just like, be good. Christianity, man, following Jesus is not about being a good person. It's about being saved. This is, why, this is why the thief on the cross nailed next to Jesus. This is why he gets into heaven. 
because the emphasis isn't on being a good person. He's never had a chance to be a good person. He's lived his whole life like being a bad person. He's on the cross for a good reason. But in that moment, he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, and he says, he says remember me. When you head, go into your kingdom, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's not about being good in your own ability. It's about being saved and being surrendered and giving your life to Jesus to do whatever you want. This is why when you do mess up, and this is why when you do feel like there's hypocrisy in you, the story's not over. This is why, this is why I mean, there is hypocrisy in the church. All of us deal with this where we, we, we say one thing and we do the other because like, it's impossible to get it all right every single day. And I'm grateful that like, we are not, it's not up to us to, to be perfect. It's not up to us to like, do it right every single day and bat a thousand to get Jesus to like us. It's about recognizing that he is God and I am not. And he did something for me that I could have never done for myself. And I surrender myself to it. And I ask him to come be Lord, to be God of my life. If you're taking notes, look at this with me. The greatest threat to the New Testament church in the first century wasn't immorality. It was legalism. Which is a really important thought to catch in light of all the information I gave you at the front end about what's happening in Ephesus. All kinds of immorality that you would think would, would, would have the power to sort of encroach on the church and you know, be, be, be dark enough and strong enough to sort of snuff out its light and, and, and destroy it and keep it from growing. No, no, that's, that wasn't the issue. That wasn't the problem. That wasn't the big threat to the church in the first century. The big threat to the church in the first century and that remains the big threat today is just legalism. It's legalism. Let me, let me help you understand this a little bit more and then I'm gonna probably get you out of here. So, it's not a promise. Uh, <laughs> The law of the Old Testament, okay, I kind of I hit on it a minute ago, the Torah, is a system that God put in place so that sinful fallen people would be able to, like, once again, have proximity to a holy God, right? After, 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 after sin entered the world, after the fall of man, like, like this, is, this is a system God, God put in place to allow sinful people to, once again, come into proximity to a holy God. And so the law, you have to understand, doesn't come from this place of anger. Like, I'm so ashamed of you. How could you think to do that? But it comes from this place of love, of God desperately wanting to be reconciled to his people. And under the Old Testament law, this was the only path for dealing with the penalty of sin. It was the only path to try to, to, try to produce some level of right standing with God, even though it wasn't good enough to, to, uh, to really do it the way, uh, to do it completely. It was an impossible path. The law was an impossible path because it demanded perfection. The law had to be kept perfectly. Every time the law was violated, even for the smallest violation, that transgression, that sin, like it had to be dealt with. And so, just to give you some more understanding here, to make sure people didn't sin, these Pharisees I was talking about, who, I mean, they got punched drunk on legalism. The Pharisees... In order to make people not sin, they put extra rules around the law to, to make sure people didn't even come close to sinning. They added all of these like extra requirements. And so eventually it, it turned into 613 laws that had to be kept perfectly. That's a lot more than 10, right? 
And, and, and all of a sudden, they're dealing with 613 laws, and these are kind of, kind of, kind of designed to sort of inoculate the law so that, so that the people don't even get close to breaking it or violating it. And it was a heavy, 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 heavy burden. Heavy burden. And it kind of came from a good place, by the way. I don't know, maybe you don't realize, realize this at, at first glance, but the Pharisees, they knew that there was like a prophecy and that, that God would bless them. They knew that like in their future, God had promised that he would bless their future, but they're living here under the, the oppression of Rome and they're like, this isn't much of a blessing. And so they are desperate for the blessing of God to be upon their people once again. And so as they're reading the Old Testament, they're, they're, they're reading about a level of holiness that the priests had who served in the temple. And their thought was, hey, what if, what if the type of holiness that existed in the temple, in the priests in the temple, we could get that into every home? And so they took the requirements that were upon the priests and they put those requirements upon the people and it created this heavy, heavy, heavy burden. It, th- this, uh, this heavy yoke that Jesus talks about in Matthew 11. And so... Over the course of time, these traditions, both oral and written, became more important than obeying the law in the, in the first place. And so here's, here's the problem with religion, and you might want to scratch these down, they're not on the screen, but religion creates shame when you can't live up to the expectations. Religion creates pride and spiritual elitism, which we see going on a lot. It creates judgment as well. And legalism to the law is what Jesus refers to as a heavy yoke or a heavy burden in Matthew 11 when he offers this opportunity for people to trade in the heavy yoke for his yoke that is light. How many of y'all know that 613 laws is a pretty heavy burden to keep perfectly? And so in the first century, even outside of Jerusalem, like the gospel is broken out of Jerusalem. This isn't just like a Jewish faith anymore. Right? So it's broken out. It's now into, into the Mediterranean realm, but the law is still really common amongst the Christians. It's still being taught as truth. But the way they were expected to apply it resulted in distortions and it resulted in heartache and all sorts of problems and all sorts of heavy burdens. If you're taking notes, look at this with me. The, the law is the issue that has to be dealt with in order to bring us into a right relationship with God. So they weren't wrong. Like, they weren't wrong. Like, the law still had to be dealt with. Like, it wasn't like it was, um, you know, the, the, like, like the, the, it wasn't like you're now lawless and could just do whatever it had to be dealt with. But again, Paul writes here and he says, there is a proper use of the law and there is an improper use of the law. And so here's the deal. The law, the proper use of the law is to expose sin it's to restrain sin. You think about the, the, the law of God, even how it has, as it has set itself up in, in like human history. You know, the Ten Commandments has been used for, for uh, um, different civilizations and societies and how they would govern. So like, like the law of God in its intent, one of its purposes was to restrain sin, to like hold it back, to, to, to prevent like all out anarchy, meant to expose sin meant to convict those who are breaking the law, who are lawless. And, but, the, but, the, but the really important thing to know, Paul's trying to make sure they understand this because they're improperly using the law is he's trying to help people understand that the law cannot save sinners, cannot save sinner, uh, sinful people. It can only reveal their need for a savior. 
That's all it can do. And what I, just, what I just shared with you like, is the beauty of the gospel because Jesus is the only one who could ever meet the demands of the law. It's through his sacrificial death on the cross that the demands of the law could finally be met perfectly. The gospel is not an announcement of what you need to do to get God to like you. Rather, it is an announcement that God already likes you, and that is why he sent his son to die for your sins and to save you, because while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. What I'm getting at here is a doctrine in the church, the doctrine of justification. It's like an important, important piece to what we believe. The doctrine of justification is this idea that those who are in Christ, those who, who have given themselves to Jesus, who have made him Lord of their life, the doctrine of justification is this idea that those who are in Christ are getting Jesus's, are getting credit for Jesus' righteousness. That's the doctrine of justification. That when you and I stand before God, it is not your righteousness that he sees. It is the righteousness of Jesus that has been credited to you. That's a big deal. Because there's only one who was ever capable and only one who was ever worthy. Only one who, ever, who could ever uh, meet the demands of the law. And it was Jesus. And, and that should, I mean, that should uh, affect us at, at, at a pretty deep level in our soul right now. But the good news is that, look, while you couldn't do it yourself, Jesus could. And, 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 and the beauty of the gospel is that his righteousness is given to you. It's credited to you. This is what uh, is called imputed righteousness, if you want to look at this on the screen with me. Which is the righteousness of Jesus is now credited to the Christian, enabling the Christian to be justified. It's impugned upon the Christian, the one who is now in Christ. The righteousness of Jesus is now brought to you. It's as if you went to the cross. It's as if you kept the law. That, that, I mean, it, 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 right? It's as if you never sinned. Like this is what the righteousness of Jesus does for you and for me. It wipes the slate clean. And this is beautiful, is it not? Like who would do this? Like, like the scales of justice are tipped in your favor, in my favor, because of his righteousness that is, is like copy and pasted from him to, to me and to you. And so you can understand the, when, when the beauty of the gospel begins to be corrupted in, in, in the first century in Ephesus, and, and since then, many times over, where people try to, try to return to this religious legalism, performance, an emphasis on external behavior, on efforting their way and doing everything they can to try to get God to like them, why this is an affront to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's, it's, it, it, it's just hollow. It won't work. It won't work. Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Yeah, that's a good one. Galatians 2.16 says, A man is not uh, justified by observing the law, but by faith. Listen to that. A man is not, what's the word? Justified. What did I just talk to you about? The doctrine of what? Justification. So a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. This is a, 
uh, you may not catch that just because I, I kind of uh, lifted that scripture, but uh, um, Galatians 2 right here, this is, this is, this is really when Paul is, is confronting Peter for his hypocrisy. You remember, you remember that story? You remember where like, Peter is, like, is, is going around and he's, he's uh, sitting and eating with all the Gentiles and having a you know, great time with them, but once, the, once the, the Jewish Christians show up and uh, he, he all of a sudden like, withdraws from the Gentiles so, so that he, he eats with them and uh, you know, follows their like, uh, dietary standards and all of that, and Paul just confronts him and is like, look, like, like, what are you doing? You're going back to, the ob- to observing the law. What are you doing? Like, this isn't what justifies us. And he gets, he gets rebuked by Paul. That would have been an interesting moment, right? Like, two massive pillars in, of the church are, like, at it. It's really interesting. So what Paul, I think what Paul wants you and I to know is that we're always going to have this tendency in us to try to, to try to move towards some sort of self-righteousness. We're like where our conscience can somehow be cleansed by our own merit. And he's saying, look, like, like, like stop it. Like, don't go down that path. Self-righteousness is a sense of righteousness or moral superiority that is produced from within oneself. And this just is not the gospel. It does not work that way. This idea that I've made myself righteous? How, like, like, what if... What if, what if you decided to like take your, whatever your righteousness was in your own ability and, and, and kind of bank on that as enough as you stood before God one day? Like never, right? Like all kinds of fear. Like, like no, I don't want, I don't want, Old Testament tells us that our righteousness is like filthy, filthy rags compared to his glory. It just doesn't work. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like we all have. And this is great, great, great news because it's not up to you and it's not up to me. It requires us to just receive the free gift of Jesus and to rest. You know that invitation in Matthew 11 from Jesus is, hey, hey, are you tired? Are you weary? Come to me. Are you tired? Are you weary of trying to like be perfect? Are you tired? Are you weary of trying to like keep up an appearance? Are you tired? Are you weary of trying to do all of these things in your own ability? He says, come to me. Come to me. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There was a... uh, an art piece done in 2001 in England by a, a woman named Rachel uh, Whiteread. Uh, it was presented in London, London's uh, Trafalgar Square. And apparently there is a place there uh, called the Fourth Granite Plinth, Plinth, which is a base for a monument or a statue, um, apparently. It was built in 1841 to support an equestrian statue of King William IV, but the statue never arrived, and it left the, the plinth vacant uh, ever since. So uh, it's, for the last 158 years, uh, it has remained vacant. So in recent years, the plinth has been used uh, to, 
to kind of hold temporary uh, d uh, different pieces of public art. So different artists, you know, who had done, you know, different sculptures or different, different pieces of art, they would, they would take this, this uh, monument base that does not hold a statue and different modern day artists would, would, for a period of time, temporary period of time, would put their piece of art on there. And so uh, Rachel Whiteread decided to put one of her pieces of art on the plinth for a temporary showing, and she called it the monument. Look at this picture with me. She called it the monument. And it was received with mixed reactions. People thought this project was a waste of time and that it was a waste of money. But if you look closely at what she's done, right, is she has taken the, the monument base and she has flipped it upside down. Basically to say to those who would see it that everything you try to build with all of your power and all of your might, it is empty and it needs to be turned upside down. That's what this piece of art essentially means. It's a great picture, I think. I think it's a prophetic picture. It's a picture of what religion really is. Something that has been built up and seen as a source of authority, but it's empty and it's hollow and it needs to be turned on its head. It needs to be turned on its head. A couple thoughts before I let you out. Look at this with me. We have to reject any place where performance has crept into our spiritual life. Any sinful behaviors that we have excused in ourselves so that our faith does not become lifeless religion. We got to do it. It has to happen. It's not an option. And then maybe a takeaway thought for you today how can we practice our faith in such a way that we avoid self-righteousness by taking the truth of Jesus and living it out in a beautiful and compelling way? Would you stand? Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment as I get ready to pray. I just want to ask, you know, some questions in here today. You know, we're talking about some real serious stuff. We're talking about really the, 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 the foundational stuff when it comes to our faith. That it's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's up to Jesus. And if you're here today and you've noticed that in your spiritual life, performance has crept in. And, and you know, there, there's something twisted going on there. Instead of resting in like what Jesus has done for you, there is this belief that has crept in of having to like do all these things to get him to just like you. Uh, and, and you want to be freed from that today. I'd love to just pray for you if you're here and you want to raise your hand so I can see you. Like, like uh, it's, it's probably all of us, by the way, to some degree. It happens way more often than you'd like to admit. If you find yourself also really connecting with that thought that, you find yourself maybe excusing in yourself what you judge in others, taking your, your stuff and just viewing it as circumstantial, but assigning it to other people's character when they do it. And you're just like, look, I, I want to be, be set free from these things. I want to have a pure heart before God. I want to stop excusing away like sin and behaviors in my life. It just needs to go. Could I just see your hand? Let Jesus come. Let the Holy Spirit come. Let him just break chains off. Let him just set you free rests in the, in, in, in the beauty uh, of the presence of God right now. And so, Holy Spirit, come and do the things that you're great at. 
the things that we are powerless to do, I pray that you would come and do it now. You have the power to break like generational patterns of sin. You have the power to break things off that we've given ourselves over to. You have the power to set us free. And so I just pray now that he who the Son has set free is free. Would you come now, God, and do this deep work in our soul. Strip off all the need for performance. Strip off all the stuff that makes us feel like we've got to earn your approval. All the stuff that makes us feel like you're just not quite pleased with us until we do X, Y, and Z, God. Free us from this. Show us the true heart of the Father. I pray that every person under the sound of my voice today would experience, would feel, would know, would understand the deep, deep love of Father God in this house right now. I thank you that there is none like you. Set us free, O oh God, and change the way that we live. I pray, God, that we would just be a church that definitely has concerns about the world, but takes that honest look of what's actually going on in us more disgusted with the stuff in us than we are with the stuff in the world and just say, God, God, make us right. God, make us right. Let us be that city on a hill, that beacon of light that brings hope to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.